is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. What's up, biohackers? In today's episode, I sit down with Phil White and discuss some of the top tech available for upgrading your performance. Phil White's an Emmy-nominated writer and the co-author of Unplugged, Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness, with Brian McKenzie and Dr. Andy Galpin as well. He's also the co-author with Dr. Kelly Stratt of the forthcoming book Flight Plan, which teaches you some really amazing ways to mitigate the unwanted health effects of longer flights, especially now as we add Wi-Fi to planes and all of that nonsense. Um, He's got some other amazing projects that you guys should check out. He's got one called Game Changer with the University of Michigan football performance director, Dr. Fergus Conley, and another one called Bridging the Gap that he does with Sue Falstone, the first female athletic head trainer in major league sports. So you can check out more about Phil and his work at Phil whitebooks.com. And in this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show, Phil and I discuss the one thing that you must do every day if you want to upgrade your fitness performance and consciousness, what Phil means by the white belt mentality and how self-care is an instrumental part of personal growth, how Phil used this three-position carry, and we'll explain what that is and how you can do it to fix his dodgy right shoulder. Dodgy's uh, a word that the English used to basically mean it was messed up. And uh, what is an SBN workout? and when you should apply it to your routine. We also go deep into the apps, tech, and tests that Phil uses regularly that you guys can apply to your life. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Phil White. Hey, everyone. I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks, and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. I'm here with Phil White, author of Unplugged. Excited to talk about technology and all the good, bad, and the ugly. Phil, welcome to the show. Hello, sir. Thanks for having me. <laughs> before, before you authored this book with Brian McKenzie, who we've had on the show, and uh, Andy Galpin, give us a little bit of your background and how you got to where you're at today. Well, sure. Well, um, so really, this this story, the Cliff, Cliff Notes version, because I don't want to bore you for an hour and a half. But um, so through my work with Sup the Mag, which is kind of like the stand-up paddleboarding uh, companion to Surfer Magazine, I got connected with Dr. Kelly Starrett, um, of course, author of um, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Death Band and uh, Ready to Run, all those wonderful books. And so... Kelly ended up doing a video for, for us and for the magazine. And really just my pitch to my editor was like, look, this guy's, you know, thinking about movement quality, heaven forbid. And, and uh, we all know how many elbow and shoulder and back mishaps um, can happen in the paddling world and surfing world. And so, um, you know, why don't we go ahead and, and talk to Kelly and have him do a video? Yeah, so we we just really started bouncing around the idea of doing a version of Ready to Run, but for surfers and paddlers. And so 
that book will hopefully be out next summer. And then we also ended up writing another one called Flight Plan, which is really strategies and a model slash protocol to, to survive air travel and not just survive it, but to thrive. And so that will hopefully be out at the end of this year. And so really through Kelly, he was super generous with introducing me to a, a lot of um, his connections. And one of those was Brian McKenzie. And then so Brian and I started talking about how we might be able to sort of work on a book and what that might look like. And really what we, we settled on was this topic of fitness technology and the, the pros and cons, um, maybe how sometimes it's another layer of tech addiction, how there's a better way to use it if you're going to, and then also just the need to sometimes, as the name of the book Unplug suggests, just to disconnect from all your gadgets and gizmos and uh, fully be present and reconnect to your own instincts and uh, the feedback that you're getting from your natural environment. Very cool. Very cool. And so for someone listening, that's, that's completely unaware of any of the, the health risks or negative consequences of fitness technology or um, electromagnetic fields, what would you say is the, single most concerning aspect of technology and its impact on our health? Sure. Well, to start off, I guess I would preface that by saying that this is not an anti-technology book. But what we're saying is that rather than trying to use tech as a be-all and end-all, whether that's a fitness tracker on your wrist or an app on your phone or one of these new coach in your ear, you know, these these uh, headphone-enabled sunglasses or whatever it is telling you when to speed up or slow down, that if you're going to be using fitness technology, you should be using it as a cueing tool, as something to calibrate or recalibrate, and as something really that is helping you make that connection between how you're feeling and what's going on with your physiology. And that's the good way to use it. And so we provide a model to do that in the book and some some uh, strategies. And then we also start to talk about some of the limitations of technology. And I think the trouble comes is when you start to, to fully rely on the tech and it becomes a taskmaster. And the problems there are several. One of them is that we we start to blunt our own instincts and so that could be if you're out running and you're constantly looking down at your heart rate monitor, well, usually you might notice a little divot in the trail and it's going to cause you no problem and you're just going to be able to carry on your merry way. But if, if your distraction is, um, is that great from, from using this, this on-risk tracker or, like I said, an app on your phone, maybe that one little divot makes you sprain an ankle or like the guy that almost ran into me on the trail while I was writing this book um, a few months ago, was just completely unaware of himself and how he was interacting with his environment. So I think the problem is it blunts your instincts. It can take you out of your environment. And also it can become exercise and movement is meant to be a stress-relieving thing. But if if you're beholden to this taskmaster on your wrist that's telling you you have to collect X number of steps a day, you have to move now, you have to do this now, and um, and really, it starts to become the cult of more, you know, more steps, more reps, more miles. The, the very thing that's meant to be relaxing you, which is movement and is meant to be a natural thing, becomes an unnatural thing and becomes yet another stressor in your life. 
When, when did you first have an epiphany that this was becoming a problem? I mean, really just, um, there, there have been, it's more of a progression over time rather than just a kind of um, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, or a lightning bolt moment, whatever you would want to call it. But just the, the proliferation of, of these devices and how many people you see walking around with their heads down, not just on a phone now, but looking at a wrist tracker. And also some of the ads for these devices, I think, are making claims that are blatantly untrue. And they're trying to sell a lifestyle. I think it becomes almost like somebody walking around with a Rolex on their, their, their wrist to signify that they're rich. But it can become a social signifier. Like, look at me. I'm projecting. I'm fit. I'm healthy. And... Um, and so it starts to become almost like a status symbol or someone driving a Porsche or something like that, which, hey, if they've got enough money to buy a Porsche and they want a Porsche, it's, you know, all good. But if they're just driving that vehicle to try to portray something, the same as if somebody's just wearing a, a tracker to show others how fit and healthy and wonderful they are, um, then that starts to become a problem. And then also we started to see there have been a couple of class action lawsuits against well-known manufacturers of some of these devices. And so once we, we began to dive into the data behind this, um, you know, partly triggered by our conversations with our co-author, Dr. Andy Galpin, and then some of just the stories in the mass media, we found that some of these devices are highly inaccurate. And so if you're, if you're spending hours a day, whether that's on, on Strava or something like that, or one of these other platforms obsessing over data, I think you need to back up and ask yourself, is what you're collecting something you can understand? And is it actually accurate? And why do some of these manufacturers have these massive scrolling web pages full of disclaimers about, hey, it isn't going to work the same if you're at altitude, if there are different weather conditions, if there are changes in humidity? And um, so is what you're, collect you're collecting accurate? And it, is it understandable and is it applicable? Is it, it, because if it's enriching your experience in any way, then collect all the data you want. But it, if it isn't, if it's actually detracting from, from your movement experience um, or it's not solving a particular problem, then as Stephen Kotler said, unless you're top 3% in the world and you're trying to become top 1%, frankly, I don't know what you're doing here. Like, I, what are you tracking? I don't really understand what your goal is here. Yeah, you, you mentioned one of some of these lawsuits that that we've seen surfacing on the, the accuracy of the data, um, and there there's talk now and a, and a growing body of evidence about how some of these technologies, not the least of which is is the cell phone, can negatively impact our cellular health and our our energy production in and of themselves. Is yeah, that and that's not. That's not something that we get deep into in the book. Um, I mean, we were certainly cognizant of that, but it's not really our area of expertise. But I look at a book like Adam Alter's book, Irresistible, where he talks about how these devices are designed to foster addiction. And that was one of the things that we were looking at on that end with regard to you know, not necessarily like EMF and all, all the potentially harmful waves and everything else, but it, it really is a layer. That fitness tracking can become another layer of technology addiction, and that in doing so, obviously, the more you are connected to 
a device, the more you are going to be exposing yourself to, you know, potentially harmful waves and electromagnetic pulses and all this kind of thing. Um, I just don't feel super qualified to talk about that as that wasn't our primary area of expertise or research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what what are you seeing in people that 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 you feel are some of the biggest mistakes they're making with um, with these types of fitness technologies and trackable devices? Sure. Well, a few people have pointed out to us the fact they think it's rather strange that Tim Ferriss is featured in the book because he's kind of known as one of the pioneers of the, the self-quantified, you know, the quantified self-movement. Mm-hmm. But actually what they don't realize is that one, Tim is super smart and he's also very intentional in the way he does certain things in his life. Already everything he does is purposeful. And so one of the key quotes from the book, from, from my standpoint, is what Tim said that uh, you should use the least amount of technology necessary, not the most you think you can handle. And he actually goes on to say the most uh, useful piece of fitness technology he has ever used is the old combination of pen and paper to track his workouts over the years. And then he does digitize those. Um, he backs them up to Evernote, which uh, I also use and used heavily throughout the research process for the book. But um, his point being that uh, then, then in recording those workouts that he could go back and if he has a certain goal or objective around an outcome, whether it's he wants to improve his deadlift or oh man I, you know I, I tweak my back I don't really know what I should do for the next few weeks you can look back at 10 or 12 years ago where maybe something similar happened and, and just look at that um, the, that set of workouts and then he, he has a pattern that he can repeat and, and also what I think he's saying is that it, it, technology should be a tool and not a taskmaster and so if if for example say you're a coach you can use technology as a queuing tool. So if, say, so you, you see that somebody's performing a squat and at a certain depth, they're rounding their back. Well, the first thing is you can use a, a, a tool such as a Coach's Eye, an app like that, to record their, their movement and to show them, you know, the before and after or maybe what a, a good squat versus a bad squat looks like. But then secondarily to to really help increase their understanding. And then secondarily, the next level of that is that then then you could say, I want you to really focus on what it feels like. Like if I say the word now, that means you're starting around. And when I say that, try to really dial in on what you're feeling. Like do do you start to feel some tightness in your butt or your hips? Or is there something weird going on with the pelvis, you know, that you're, you're cognizant of? And really the goal there being that so people can can self start to self-identify the error. And then you start to give them strategies of, okay, th- when th- you feel this start to happen, you do this. And so that could be make sure you're screwing your feet into the ground to create that kind of stabilizing torque at the hip. Um, you know, whatever strategy the coach may have for correcting that pattern, you know, using Kelly Starrett's movement and mobility system um, is always a good start. But so really what you're trying to do is, is to get the athlete to get to the point where they can self-identify and then eventually strip away the technology, again, whether that be an app like Coach's Eye or something else, and not only self-identify a movement error, but know what the strategy is and be able to implement that without the need for a technology intervention or indeed the coach's intervention. And so that's just an example of what Tim's talking about in really 
you can use the technology as a tool to solve a specific problem or perhaps to get to a specific aim in collecting you know, one data point, but it shouldn't become the be-all and end-all. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, a lot of my journey with biohacking and, and the various disciplines it involves has been that there's a lot of technology and tools that can help close the gap that exists between our, you know, our DNA and our modern environment. And, you know, sometimes some of that's lack of sunlight. Some of that is exposure to toxins and, um, and, and frequencies that didn't exist, you know, 50, hundred years ago. Um, but ultimately a lot of the, like, if you want the highest level of performance and results in any area, it's, it, it, it almost always comes from just reconnecting to the natural world, our intuition, and our own mind-body connection. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you look at the book, there's a story in there that Led Hamilton tells where he was actually snowboarding. Now, yes, I do know Led is a surfer, but uh, he likes to snowboard in the winter. And he got a sense of danger when, when they were about to go down a particular run, a friend of his was about to push off and he grabbed the guy's jacket and yanked him backwards. And a few seconds after that, this avalanche just came through and wiped out the area where his friend would have been dropping into. Now, was that something audible? Was that just some kind of sixth sense intuition? I don't know. But I imagine Laird is kind of the human tuning fork that he is from being outside so much and being in so many different environments, you know, primarily in the water, but also on the mountain as well, that he has become so sensitized to the environment that he, he has those kind of instincts. And I think really it's um, if you trade your exercise bike for a fat bike or just a regular bike, you know, if you trade your, your treadmill for, for a trail, whether that be, you know, I'm blessed to live in a small mountain town, so that could be actually on the side of a mountain, or if you're in a city, just take a path that, that leads you down by a river or through a park. Um, if you trade your, your rowing machine for, uh, for a paddleboard or something like that, or an actual rowing boat, heaven forbid, I, I think that um, we're, never saying, we're not saying that you should never do an indoor workout again, but it's only by being fully present and engaged in those kind of outdoor environments that someone like Laird Hamilton is able to develop those instincts. And I think we have a real problem in our society of never being fully present. And uh, Linda Stone coined the term continuous partial attention, which we mentioned in the book. And I think that we're continuously paying attention to multiple things. And one of them is, or can be, the, this tracker on our wrist, this coach in our ear, this this app on our phone in our pocket and um, in kind of dividing our attention, we think that we're multitasking, we're being more efficient and that we're gaining something. But my question is, what are we losing by uh, through this continuous partial attention and by, by lacking presentness? And that's not to go down like a yogi road or to, to say that everyone should become a, a monk on the, you know, a mountaintop somewhere and just completely disconnect. But um, I think, I think really the lesson that we, we try to give in the book by, by talking to the likes of Laird and Kai Lenny and then the alpinist Leif Whitaker, um, whose father, of course, was on that first American team, the Summit Everest, is that um, even if you don't want to go out and surf 70-foot waves or you don't want to climb Everest, you can really start the 
to, to reap the benefits, um, whether that's dropping into a flow state, as Stephen Kotler explains in the book, and the role of nature there. Um, just becoming more aware of your environment, you know, maybe it's you go out with your kids and your wife for, for a 30-minute hike every day. And so this is why we really challenge people to just spend 15 to 30 minutes out in nature, fully unplugged and fully connected to themselves, whoever they may be with, and to their environment. And just let us know, you know, via social feeds or or the website, um, athleteunplugged.com, what are some of the the benefits you start to see become your own experiment and see, see what changes you start to see in yourself. If you do that and you, and you do commit to being fully present and to, uh, to full, being fully immersed in your environment for those 15 to 30 minutes a day. So it really isn't this complex thing, but it's how do we, how do we get back to simplicity? Yeah. And you mentioned something that I think is, is epidemic and that's this, as we rely more and more on technology, it's almost like we trust ourselves less. Mm-hmm. And you guys shared some, some pretty interesting data on, um, on runners and that an, an experiment where basically you, you had runners and please correct me if I'm, if I'm misquoting, but you had them try to replicate their exertion level um, with, without using any single piece of technology. And a lot of these runners, almost all of them were coming in within one or two seconds of their original time. Yeah, and that was that was kind of a, a landmark study for us to anchor that little section around. And the point being, if uh, you know they got got them in the lab and um, said, "Okay, you know, let, let's try to recreate your," and I forget whether it was five k pace or whatever it was, you know, your PB or whether it was like an eighty percent effort, this kind of thing. But um, it, it's really connected to that rate of perceived exertion. And another study or two that we quote in there shows that that can be as or more accurate sometimes than using heart rate monitoring and HRV and really just, um, you know, how does it feel? Like if, if you know you, you, you want to do an in quotes hard workout, well, look at someone like Zatopek, you know, the runner from back in the day who was one of the first to use interval training and wasn't doing it even with a stopwatch, but he was just out in, in the forests of Eastern Europe, uh, and he he had a distance that he would call his longer interval, which was maybe around 350, 400 meters. And then he had a shorter one of, I think, 150 to 200 meters. And um, there's a gentleman who wrote a book, I, I believe it's called Today We Die a Little or something along those lines. I think his name's Richard Asquith. He also wrote a great book on fell running called Feet in the Clouds. And he just tells this story of how Zatopet used to train. And he would just go on these, in quotes, hard days. He would just go out and think, okay, I'm going to do some of these shorter distances, really hard and fast. I'm going to do some of these longer ones. And when I feel my pace or my effort level decline, I'm done for the day. And then I'm going to walk home and eat dinner. And in, it, in doing this, I mean, most people are probably familiar at this point with Mo Farah, the British track athlete and how he was able to win, you know, so many 5,000 and 10,000 meter races at the world championships and the Olympics. Well, imagine if he did that, but then he also just for a laugh decided I'm going to run the marathon as well. And, Oh, I'm actually going to win that. And it's the first marathon I've ever run. Well, this is what Zatopek did. And to me, he was one of the most instinctual and instinctive athletes in history. And so just looking at some of these different case studies, um, and then tying them back to the, the lab-based research that, that you mentioned, I mean, we we start to see some real uh, 
real kind of we ha- we hold these troops to be self-evident because they they worked in the field for, for Zadopek in winning the 5k the 10k and the marathon at the olympics that time and in his his training and how he just went by feeling and then we also see now if if you need a lab study to back it up well we have that and it appears in a peer-reviewed journal so anyone that says oh well he was just a genetic freak or he was an anomaly well that may well be but um you have this kind of practice-based side, which I think, you know, is one of the reasons we wanted to bring in Brian as the, the pr- practitioner and the coach, and then Andy as the scientist on the other hand, hand and, and try to combine those two two perspectives in Unplugged. Very cool. Was this something that you struggled with yourself, or is it more something that you've observed? No, so, I mean, from my personal experience, I guess something I didn't really put in the book was there was a time probably two or three years ago where if I knew I was going to be doing a hard interval workout on the row machine, I would think, man, I've got to, uh, I've got to make sure I have, you know, a banana and a handful of almonds like 30 to 40 minutes before, which I now know is probably just diverting blood flow to the digestive system and away from the muscles. Um, but I've also got to have a, a pretty hard driving playlist, you know, in my ears, because otherwise this thing's going to be awful. I'm going to hate it and I'm not going to be able to get through it without having music. But then I realized that over time that when I, I kind of challenged myself and had a couple of buddies who I was working out with at the time challenged me to, to see, well, it, is that even really true or is that just a construct that you've created for yourself? So next up, couple of times you do this, you know, 10 times one minute interval workout, ditch the headphones, go in with a positive attitude of I'm going to go in and crush it today and then see how that works out. Oh, and the next time, don't worry about whether you've had a snack 30, 40 minutes before, an hour before, whatever it might be. Oh, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm not going to be fueled. Bull crap. Go in there, no headphones, you know, no, no snack beforehand and see if your liver, heaven forbid, could actually maybe fuel you off of ketones a little bit or a, more of a ketone um, carb blend. And so, yeah, just, just tried stripping it away like that and realized that it was actually a psychological construct. So I think that we... Um, we start to see people panicking if their device runs out of battery or isn't working or there are even hashtags set up on social media. Like, again, not the bash of anyone from Strava or who loves Strava is listening to this. This isn't the bash then, but there's the hashtag Strava fail. And, and there's this mentality of, well, if I'm not tracking the workout, it doesn't count. Or if I don't have my headphones in because my iPhone or my iPod ran out of battery, well, I'm not going to be able to get through this thing. It's, it's too difficult. Really? Or is that just, just something, are you priming yourself for failure with those kind of, that, that kind of mentality? And I think a lot of what we started to discover was that it, um, it is indeed just a construct of the mind and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I like that. I like, it sounds like you're advocating being willing to ask the difficult questions and to question whether or not you're doing things based on opinions and assumptions uh, compared to an, uh, you know something that exists in reality yeah absolutely and then i think we one of the people that we brought in as an expert was dr lenny wiersma who's a psychologist a performance psychologist out in california who has worked with usa swimming you know and has worked with a lot of the college the best college swim and 
water polo teams and has worked with everyone from everyday Joe athletes through, you know, kind of competitive level through to Olympic and world champions in virtually every sport. And, um, so, you know, he started to talk to us about motivation. And now if you, if you're interested in one stat, which is ironic for us to talk numbers, I guess, but a simple one that we found is that up to 50% of people who buy a fitness tracker stop using it within six months. And so I guess you could go one of two ways with that. You could go into, well, what is the, what is the, the reason for that? Or what are the reasons? Or, you know, what are the outcomes of that? And, and really what Lenny said is it comes back to this question of extrinsic motivation, which is either, you know, maybe on the simplest level, someone telling you to do something or a device telling you to do something versus you wanting to do it for yourself or for the purpose of just you love the activity and you want to be the best you can in it. And really, Lenny says that, um, not to put words in his mouth, and I think he'd be a great interview for you as well, but that if you have that intrinsic motivation that it, or you're able to combine intrinsic with it extrinsic, that it's a lot more long-lasting. And so this kind of fits well with a, a, a story my friend Brad Stolberg at Outside Magazine, who wrote the wonderful book Peak Performance, which is kind of a must-buy if you're interested in any of this stuff, him and Steve Magnus. He talked about um, if you need accountability, instead of using a device, maybe go out and find a friend or family member who will work out with you or who will, you know, you can go hit a tennis ball around with or go walk on a trail, whatever whatever your thing might be. And then that's going to be a lot better and give you longer lasting results than this device in your either in your pocket or on your wrist that, that you're probably going to get sick of. And then um, if you are, if you're competitive, you've got to be able to to mirror the conditions in competition. So in training, one of the things that Lenny added is that if you are training with technology hooked in the whole time, what happens in competition when you're trying to pace yourself and you've been used to this device pacing you? You're not going to be able to compete with that device on your wrist. So you're not creating a realistic learning experience that applies directly to your, to your competition. And really the example that Andy and Lenny both talked about was Michael Phelps when his goggles started filling with water in the Olympics that time. And his coach, Bob Bowman, had got ahead of the problem here and created some adversity. You know, he had him swim in the dark. They had some goggles that were colored in with black permanent marker. And so they had tried to strategize anything that can go wrong will go wrong in competition. And Phelps was able to win that race and I believe set either an Olympic or world record without being able to see because just intuitively he knew what the pace was that he needed to hold, that he was capable of holding, and also how many strokes were needed from the point that that happened to the end of the race. And by feeling alone was able to, to, to come through and win at the absolute highest level. And you don't have to be Michael Phelps for that to apply to you and in your life. How, how much of this has to do with training adaptability? And, and resilience, like essentially saying that you're building systems that survive and even thrive when the unexpected occurs. Well, uh, yeah, I think that um, if you look at, and Scott Carney did a great job in, in his book, If It Doesn't Kill You, of explaining this, you know, and again, I'd advise anyone to go read that as well as as Brad Brad's book, Peak Performance. Those are kind of two 
must-reads, I think, in the last couple of years. But um, Carney talks about how we've created these environments where we've tried to get rid of adversity. So we have air conditioning in our homes and our cars, and you know we have these $900 ergonomic chairs, um, which stop sitting people. Read Desk Band by Dr. Kelly Starrett as well. But anyway, if you're going to sit, you know we we've been led to believe that you have to be, have the leather seat upgrade in your car or fancy desk chair, whatever it is, and. Um, there are all these different ways that we've tried to get rid of extremes of temperature in our lives or just manufacture comfort in different ways. And, um, you know, Andy talks about how there are even processes in the body like cold shock proteins um, that people try to stimulate with ice baths. And, you know, Brian and his work with XPT really got deep into the fire and ice element of things. And then also these heat shock proteins, which are stimulated by the sauna. Or even if you want to do the, the kind of 101 level, just a hot bath followed by a cold shower, you know, that can be effective in triggering these. And these are tied into longevity. They're tied into immunity. They're tied into reduced rates of Alzheimer's and other degenerative brain conditions. And there are, again, there is science to back this up, but there's a reason that cultures from Native Americans to Scandinavian peoples have been using hot and cold for hundreds or thousands of years and basically building in some adversity into each and every day. Um, and they didn't know anything necessarily at that time about cold, cold shock proteins or heat shock proteins, but they did know that it worked. And that's the same as the breath work that um, Brian has got so deep into with his art of breath seminars and uh, the rest of his work through power speed endurance and finding that these elemental things um, around adversity, but around just elemental things that the body should be capable of, like being con deeply connected to your breath and then being start starting to be able to manipulate your breath to better handle these adverse conditions. These things are profoundly effective and have stood the test of time. And if all we're doing is trying to engineer comfort, we're really starting to, even at a physiological level, even outside of our actual lifestyle, to to make some of these processes which are natural for regeneration, for longevity, we're blunting these and we're making them go dormant in our bodies. Yeah, it's, it's so true. We've, we've strategically eliminated a lot of the acute stressors that make us stronger and replaced them with chronic stressors that gradually erode our, our health and vitality. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think you, you not only look at the acute effects, but, um, you know, in talking with Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is a neuroscientist at, at, um, at Stanford University, and some of his work, he talks about things that are either baseline reducing or baseline elevating. And that can be acute. You know, you're going to get some short-term benefits if you, if you do some of the fire and ice stuff, or like I said, even at the basic levels and you know, a hot bath followed by a cold shower, whatever it might be, but, um, and some of the breath work. But then we also start to look at some of the chronic effects over time. And we start to see that, that um, both of the breathing and uh, the, the heat therapy, cold therapy kind of combo, that these are, as he says, baseline elevating, not just in the short term, but uh, also over the long term, like they accumulate in a similar way to, to how exercise, you know, exercise can, can prompt some almost immediate changes in your nervous system and in various systems in your body. But it also over time has a, 
you know, the, the cumulative effect of, of exercising regularly and being active and moving throughout your day is, is baseline elevating. And I, f- I think we start, we're starting to find some of these things with regard to practices like breathing and um, the heat and ice and really just even being outdoors in nature as well. And Stephen Coulter does a great job of starting to talk about how just walking his dogs outside can drop him into a flow state that continues throughout the rest of his day, you know, for his, his book writing, his work with the Flow Genome Project, his public speaking. And he's figured out that he spends a third of his year, of each year, outside. And a friend of his said, well, well Stephen, this is crazy. How do you get anything done? And he said, that is how I get, get it done. Because the friend made the wrong assumption. He was asking the wrong question. He was thinking, well, you're basically erasing this one third of each and every day out of your life. How are you able to fit anything worthwhile into the remaining two thirds or get everything done that you need to get done? But really, Stephen said, well, you know, the, the state change that, that being outside, that doing, having a daily breath practice, that moving throughout the day in an outdoor environment in which he's fully immersed is additive acutely and from a chronic sense. And um, that is being out in nature and being fully present and immersed while moving through and over terrain. That is how he has been able to be so prolific and so successful in, in all those areas of his life. Yeah, it's um, it, it's funny you mentioned that. There's there's some similar research on exercise showing that like you know the the hour that we invest in exercise, a lot of times we not only get that hour back in in increased longevity, but um, we usually get it back with a return of like an additional one to two hours. And, and so oh, yeah. when people ask, you know, how do you find time to exercise? Well, it's it's this concept of time isn't, isn't as rigid or uh, static as, as we may think, you know, if we invest time in the right areas, whether that's getting outside in nature or exercising, we're getting that back in other ways. It's not linear. Yeah, and I think it's the same with anyone that has a, a, a faith practice, you know, a prayer or studying a sacred text or meditation, you know, if that's their thing, or as I mentioned, cultivating a daily breath practice, even if that's just five, five or 10 minutes a day. Um, and martial arts would be another one. And uh, I think that one of the reasons that Pavel, you know, who obviously popularized kettlebell training in the US and, and the West, one of the reasons his book, um, Simple and Sinister, or Sinister and Simple, I always get it the wrong way around. But anyway, that he just talks about the value of having this daily kettlebell practice that's based around two exercises, which is the get up and the kettlebell swing. And really, he also talks in that, that very short book, but very, very well done. You know, you can start out in other exercises if you want, but really in the Russian system when he was the Spetsnaz, you know, special forces instructor, that they were just training to the point of, of prompting adaptation every day versus what he saw in the West was someone goes out really, really hard on a Monday and is just so crushed, um, both from a nervous system standpoint and just fit physiologically, that they then can't exercise again till Thursday or Friday or the next week. And uh, they just keep, keep going through this ratchet effect of go really hard, you know, oh gosh, I've got to take three or four days off, go really hard again. And we never seem to learn those lessons. Whereas his point was that in, in Russia, particularly with the Spetsnaz guys, that they were doing a bare minimum every day and cultivating a practice. 
and really goes back to like the Bruce Lee thing of not fearing the man who's practiced 10,000 moves once, but it, vice versa, the guy that's practiced the, the one move 10,000 times. And so just that, you know, any martial arts practice, it doesn't have to be Jeet Kune Do, but really that idea that you can start to create these daily practices. So, you know, Kelly Starrett says, you know, commit 10 minutes a day every day to your mobility practice. You know, Brian says you can change your life in literally 10 breaths a day, which people might think it's crazy, but go look up Art of Breath, go see some of the stuff he's doing. You'll start to realize that whether you're an elite performer or just an everyday Joe like me, that that is in fact the case. You know, do, do some hot and cold three or four times a week. And just the minimum effective dose of these things, you know, do some short-term fasting. Um, and you may, as you said, in doing these things and you start to add it up, or maybe you're spending 30, 40 minutes, you know, maybe an hour a day, it's going to be additive. You can't view that as something that's subtracting from your day because it's really going to give you more than it takes out of you. What, what are your additive daily habits? And what, what have you found to be your minimum effective dose? Yeah, I mean, all of the ones that I just mentioned, um, and, and I think that, uh, that's, that spiritual discipline practice as well, you know, just, just five or ten minutes to, to either start or end the day, and just having all of those routines be a part of my day in some way, and then also just spending an hour, two hours, three hours of dedicated my phone is switched off or on silent time with my kids who are eight and 10, both boys, whether that's uh, taking them to kick a ball around, um, all of us going on a walk with, you know, with my wife after dinner, um, all of us going to, to stand up paddle on the lake, whatever that might be, just that focused and intentional time. And I don't care what the deadline is. It doesn't matter. Um, that, that, you know, you, 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 people talk about spending more quality time with your family, but you also need to, need to have quantity and uh my co-author frank Merritt, who we've worked together on a book called the 17 hour fast which is coming out in a few months really says that you cannot have an efficiency-based model when it comes to time with your family like you can't apply that henry ford model of the assembly line you know to to your to your family your friendships and uh those things that those practices in your life that are valuable you've got to go for for quantity of time as well as quality of time and so yeah those are just a few of the things that um keep me anchored and then i guess additionally just trying to read at least 30 minutes a day and preferably an hour a day if i can usually at night i usually couple that with with some some simple breath hold you know like a maybe a 12 a four second nasal inhale a 12 second hold and an eight second nasal exhale and I'll do that for 20, 30 minutes while I'm reading, just the simple apnea protocol that I got from, uh, from my course of Ryan McKenzie just to kind of down-regulate at the end of the day. I like that. And so that's a little bit different than some of the things that Wim is teaching. I know that, that they had done some work together, Brian and Wim and Laird. Um, the apnea training is a little bit more, um, and, and correct me if my assumption's off here, it's, it's a little bit more training the body to deal with higher CO2 levels, whereas a lot of what Wim is doing is, is starts with hyperoxygenation. Is that right? It is, but I think that both have a both have a place and then you start to get into some of Patrick McKeown and Leo Daniel Ryan's work around um, 
Boutico. And, and, you know, again, another great book is The Oxygen Advantage that Patrick has written. And I think that all of these different breathing techniques and also the humming and chanting is another one, you know, which sounds really hippy-dippy. But I'll tell you this much. My, my eight-year-old has struggled with asthma for a long time. And simply having him do a nasal inhale for four or five seconds and then hold a nasal exhale in which he hums for as long as he can, which you know may end up being a 20, 25-second exhale. Just doing that, we can stop an asthma attack in six to seven breaths with no inhaler needed. And so, again, that um, just taking those practical lessons that I'm learning from, from Brian and from Dr. Andy Galpin and from Kelly Starrett and these other people, um, if... if uh, if they didn't work in my own life and I haven't seen them be applicable to my 71 year old mother-in-law, um, to my mom, who's coming out the back of, of dealing with breast cancer to, to friends who are dealing with chronic pain and some, uh, some PTSD examples that we're starting to see as well. If I didn't know that this stuff worked, I wouldn't be writing about it because that would just make me a hypocrite. A few more of your habits. Like we were talking about breath work. I've, I've done some work with Wim. I've used um, apnea trainers and some of the, some of the Prolove or Frolove devices. Um, if you only had five minutes and you're a complete newbie to any type of breath work, but you're interested and willing to explore its benefits, um, how would you recommend someone starting out? So I think really, again, it goes for what, what is your outcome? So for a lot of people, they, they, we're getting better at warming up better and spinning ourselves up. And there are a lot more mechanisms in the body around the fight or flight mechanism because that's how we survive and perpetuate as a species. But I think we're very bad about coming down. And so, you know, for me, if, if I was going to answer that question day to day, at night, just doing a simple apnea protocol of one, three, two. So for every, this is all nasal, by the way, um, for every second you spend on a nasal inhale, you spend three seconds on a breath hold, and you spend two seconds on the exhale. And so again, for the very basic being maybe a four-second nasal inhale, 12-second hold, eight-second nasal exhale. But if you, um, if you go to Brian's website at Power Speed Endurance, you'll actually find um, a couple of very simple tests that will then give you a few simple protocols. And so if I, only, if I was only able to intentionally breathe for five minutes a day, that is what I would do because I struggle to, to come down from juggling all these different books and all the magazine stuff and all the other, trying to be a better husband, a better father, you know, a better friend and the commitments around that. And so that would be that. But, you know, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheeler and Stealing Fire and really going back with Stephen to, to the rise of Superman, they talk about the phenomenon of state change. And so there are different protocols you can do if you want to upregulate your system. Like if you're a very chill person that finds it hard to, to get up for a sporting event, you know, or to... Um, if you're going to be giving a, a, a speech at work, you're a person that is kind of like, not like most of us are, terrified out of their wits, where again, I would suggest some, a simple apnea protocol or even just a, you know, a slow nasal inhale and a slow nasal exhale for as long as you're able to do it. Um, then some of the, the, the hyper 
high, well, it, some people call it hyperventilation. We call it superventilation because we say that hyperventilation is is either chronic stress breathing that people don't know they're doing, or it's that kind of panting where your breath gets away from you. So we really we term um, the Wim Hof method and, and holotropic breathing and that kind of thing to be superventilation because. Of, as you mentioned, the super oxygenation component, but also the implication that you're controlling that with a desired aim. Then if you do something like that, and then on the end of it, you add in several seven to 10 second nasal exhale breaths to then downregulate a little bit. So you've upped the system, but then you bring yourself back to a point of control then that is going to be a scenario where if you're trying to get up for the start of a 5K, you know, and get really get rev yourself up or give a speech or to, to do something that involves, you know, high performance, then that's the other end of it. So I guess to hedge my bets, I would say it depends what you're, you're deciding, um, what, what state you need to be in and what you want your outcome to be. And again, Jamie and Stephen go into that in Stealing Fire, um, you can check more on Brian's website, Power Speed Endurance, and, and the breath component of that. But for me personally, I struggle to downregulate. So, yeah, if I only had five minutes, I would be doing either even nasal inhales and exhales or a simple one, three, two apnea protocol four second inhale, nasal, uh, 12 second hold, and eight second nasal exhale for as long as I'm able to do it. And I feel that that gives me longer sleep, less interrupted sleep enables me to really get into that parasympathetic recovery state. And uh, yeah, just for me personally, as someone that has kind of a high sympathetic tone and feels stressed out a lot, that's, um, that's, that's where it is at the end of the day. Have you played around at all with um, taping your mouth shut at night while you sleep so that you can only breathe through your nose? I have not, but that is something that Patrick recommends in the oxygen advantage. And his point being, well, if you look at a 24-hour block and you're sleeping enough, well, eight hours, okay, so that's not very good with numbers, as my good lady wife can, can attest to, but uh, that's a third of that 24-hour block. And so if you're, if you're trying to only breathe through your nose during the day, but then you breathe through your mouth at night, that you can start to undermine some of that effort. And so I, it's something that I'm researching more and and you know, I have thought about doing it, but currently I, I, I am not, um, I don't have that, that part of the practice, but I know others that have tried it and found, and found great benefit. But I think again, it, um, Patrick does say in the book as well, that you, you can still breathe in a poor way through your nose. Nasal breathing is always better, but you could still say snore through your nose. If you haven't done the other exercises he shares in his book to improve your CO2 tolerance. So I think the back into it, if you're going to do anything, start with trying to really make an effort to only breathe through your nose during the day, including during your training, which might mean you need to back off the intensity a little bit, um, but, but just go with it and see where that leads you. And then step two would be to do some of the, the apnea protocol things that Brian shares at Power Speed Endurance and, and that Patrick Patrick's uh, Boutico method that he kind of takes Boutico to a new level in Oxygen Advantage. That would be the second step to work on those things during the day. And then that third level would be to, to maybe experiment with some of that mouth taping at night if, uh, if that's a, a level you want to go to. Uh, I love it. And what are your thoughts on, so with like, 
apnea training, for example, there's, there's apps like the apnea trainer app. And there's, there's other ones that have been recommended from some, uh, free divers, but, um, apnea, the apnea trainer app encourages you to find your threshold of difficulty where it's not too easy, but it's not so hard that you're, um, that you're struggling and gradually increase that with time. Is that your approach or do you, um, is, are you more so focused on just doing the practice and, um, and set us, setting aside that time rather than, um, raising the bar continuously? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a danger here where earlier I talked about with fitness trackers, it can start to play into that cult of more, you know, more reps, more miles, more, 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 more steps, you know, whatever it might be, and that we can get caught in that trap. So I think that while, say, if you're doing like a 132 or a 142 apnea protocol, over time, you know, so you start off again with that four second inhale. 12 second hold, eight second exhale in my case, because that's what the test I did, you know, that was the recommendation that came out of that. Now, over time, maybe you increase that just a little bit, you know, maybe you do go to like a 5, 15, 10 in terms of seconds on on those three components of the inhale, the hold and the exhale. Um, But the real key here is just becoming more in tune with your own breath and more in touch with with the effect that that has on you in terms of your state, um, the link between how you're breathing, how you're positioned, and how you're moving. So, example, if, if you're standing or sitting in a hunched position right now, well, stop it, you know, <laughs> number one. But secondarily, being able to recognize that and to straighten back up so that you have full access to your lungs, you have full access to your diaphragm, and, and to start just doing some basic check marks around how your positioning and how your movement quality affects your breathing and then vice versa how your breathing starts to affect that so for example if you're in the middle of a workout and your breath gets away from you and you start you know (laughs) panting it's very very difficult to get that back and so starting to try to stay in front of that and not chase your breath when you're exerting yourself is one way that this can manifest itself and really improve your performance um, but but really, it's just, you know, Brian always says, become your own experiment. Like, you do you. Like, these basic protocols, whether it's a 132 or a 142 or a, you know, inhale for this long, hold for this long, exhale for this long, these are just meant as generic starting points and guidelines. And we're starting to be able to tailor those a little bit based on the kind of tests, again, that you'll find at Power Speed Endurance and then the recommendations that come out of it. But I think once you've started to become more in, in tune with your breathing, and the mechanics, you know, both from how the, the nasal inhale and exhale, how that ties in with your diaphragm, and uh, then, you know, how you're able to stabilize your spine and say, you know, hinge at the hips properly, whether you're, you know, bending down to pick up one of those Amazon boxes that we all love getting delivered to our door or your kid or your deadlifting, you know, any weight or you're, you're doing a kettlebell swing realizing some of the, the fundamental positions around that. Again, if you have questions on that, check out um, Kelly's website and mobilityworld.com for some pointers or becoming a supple leopard. And um, starting to recognize how the, that positioning, we don't just do that for its own sake, but we do that so that you're able to, to breathe at an optimal level. 
so that you're able to stabilize and protect your spine and um, so that you're able to apply your physiology and generate as much speed and power as, as your body should be capable of doing. And so you start to see these fundamental relationships between breath, positioning, and movement really just from a very simple practice of self-discovery. Like you don't need a PhD in biomechanics or to be a physiotherapist or be an osteopath to, to be able to start playing around with your breath and experimenting and seeing how different types of breathing affect how you feel, affect your heart rate, affect the positions you're able to get into and explore. And so really I would just encourage people just to, just to explore Brian's work a little bit and to see see where it takes them. You do you, you become your own experiment and see, see where you end up. And the same really with Unplugged. I mean, our manifesto at the end of the book is pretty simple. Just try to go outdoors and disconnect from your technology and reconnect to, to your own instincts, to your environment, to other people, and just try to build in some time to do this daily. Do it for a year and let us know how it goes. I love that. And, and what would you say to someone who, um, who's listening but maybe lives in New York City, downtown Manhattan? Well, there's some studies in the book that we cite that show the difference between people in an urban environment that take a walk just along purely busy city streets versus along busy city streets for some of it and then cut through a park or walk down by a river or are in some way in, in a green space. And the impact both on their inflammation markers, on their perceived stress levels, and um, the, these things are, are quite profound. And so not everyone's lucky enough to live by a beach or live in the mountains, but I think that almost everyone can find, even if they have to drive to it, um, a trail or a, just a path through, through their local park or down by a canal or something like that. And so there, there is benefit to, to changing your route and um, to including those kind of natural markers in, in that route. And if you do that, it will provide a sense of well-being, of mental clarity, and on a physiological level, you'll start to see reduced blood pressure, reduced um, chronic levels of cortisol and some of these inflammation markers. And again, literally, this is minimum dose stuff. Just go take a 10, 15, 20-minute walk a day. We're not saying you have to be outdoors 10, 10 out of every 12 hours or anything crazy. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman earlier, who's a friend, and he was out in Chicago at Biohacking Week 2. Um, kind of going through some of the some of the craziness and sharing some of his knowledge, he's he's imparted some pretty interesting studies um, where there is an activation of certain regions of the brain that occurs just by getting out in public places early in the day because so much of our life we're disconnected from other people and like while we may, we may feel more connected because of our technology there are sometimes where people can go all day or even multiple days in a row without interacting in person with someone else and he said just getting out and, and putting your mind through that process of like is this person friend or foe what are they thinking and some of this subconscious cognitive activation that takes place as we interpret other people's uh, facial constructs can be beneficial so if someone is in 
downtown New York, they may have benefits that say someone in the countryside who is, you know, doesn't see anybody all day unless they go into town won't get. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, my friend Jonathan Stalls runs a nonprofit organization called Walk to Connect. And I think you're starting to see more of these, um, these organizations cropping up around the country. I know that there are a few on the East Coast, there's a few on the West Coast, and, and Jonathan's actually based here in Denver and, and looking to expand out. And really their thing is just community walks. And he's found that um, there are benefits in the inner city, in dangerous neighborhoods of it actually increasing people's security, not just from a, a, a touchy-feely, oh, I feel safer now thing, but if you actually get out and know your neighbors, then you're more likely to look out for each other. And um, that there are a lot of collective benefits just for, from, from getting out and, again, not having your head buried in your phone or you know headphones in plus tracker on your wrist so that you're never open to a conversation either with someone you know or somebody new you might encounter and um that yeah it goes beyond just individual benefits but how does that they you know how does that start to foster true community how does that increase that sense of uh collective well-being within a community that kind of thing and just uh drawing people together but again if you're not going to go outside or if you are outside you're going to cut yourself off from others with a don't bother me signal that you're having your headphones in uh, might send or a, I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me and the people around me because I'm looking at my heart rate every 10 to 30 seconds, then um, you're going to miss out on that. So, yeah, I think to your point that there is definitely benefit to to those collective experiences and, um, and, and while it can be beneficial to take a, you know, a solo hike out in the backcountry and there are obviously some wonderful benefits both physiologically spiritually emotionally mentally with that kind of thing that um going out collectively like i mentioned earlier just us on our family walks and other families you run into and you know one time a guy was playing his bagpipes as one does you know to warm up for a wedding he was going to be playing at and my kids thought that was kind of cool well (laughs) they wouldn't have had that experience had we not been willing to set foot outside our front door yeah, yeah, I, I love it. So much of what you guys talk about in, in the book, Unplugged, is basically unplugging from technology, but plugging back into your own intuition and this community of other real living people around us um, and, and how all of that is inextricably tied to our sense of well-being and our physical and mental health. I think that's. I think it's great. I think you guys are leading a movement that is um, is very much needed at this point in time. Yeah. Well, thank you. One of the thing the things that Led Hamilton said when we talked to him that I really like is the uh, that aspect of not just communing with nature, which sounds very hippie, doesn't it? But um, I think he's better better able to talk about it than most, given his life experiences. But he said just the the brotherhood of being out there in those conditions and you know whether it's a big day at jaws you know and it's 40 50 60 feet or it's even just some small bunny ways they go out and you know he he, and what he said was kind of a paraphrase of the bible i guess in some ways like that when two or more are gathered in my name there i am that kind of idea and i'm probably butchering that but um don't hate me anyone that's listening that thinks how is he misquoting the bible and this thing but (laughs) but yeah really just that communal sense of uh 
you know, it, it goes beyond just the physical, but there's also no matter what your belief system is or if you don't have one, just that that camaraderie and that sense of, um, you know, going out there. Like the, the, the school principal at my kid's elementary school, he and I meet for coffee pretty regularly. And, and every year he, right before school starts again, as it is this week, he goes out with six or seven buddies into the back country and they have, you know, they have a spot tracker or some kind of device that if one of them got into difficulties, they could alert search and rescue to come get them. But, um, you know, it's a true unplugging trip, you know, and eventually maybe I'll be able to, to go with him. But they just went to the Tetons and, and I just met up with him a few days ago. And uh, you can see physically in his demeanor, there, there are some changes. And he, um, I mean, he's about to ramp up, you know, for school. And I imagine that's pretty stressful, but it really just sets a good tone for him in going into that. And even Kyleni said in working, working with kids who have um, physical problems or, you know, some challenges like autism and learning disabilities or cognitive difficulties, that he can see a physical change in these kids on the first day. And if it's a two or three day camp, you know, the second day, third day, and through his Positively Kai organization, some of these camps and outreach that they're able to do, um, or, or someone like Jesse Billauer, you know, life rolls on. They talk about the, the the changes that you start to see in people and that there are things in the elements outside of just more sodium in seawater, you know, that we don't even fully understand yet and don't understand the curative properties that they, they might have. And again, that's not to go like hippy-dippy on anybody or too granola, like, oh, this crazy guy from Colorado came on the show and he, he was a real hippie and he had all this crazy stuff to say. But... um you know, it just, uh, there are, th- there is something about being out there together and having shared experiences in nature that, that is curative on an individual level and, and also um, from a, a community or a brotherhood or sisterhood standpoint. Yeah. And fortunately, Phil, all of, all of our listeners are pretty used to um, <laughs> my, you know, whether you want to call it hippie, esoteric, I look at everything that you're saying as well supported in the scientific literature. And um, not only is it, it are, are these devices separating ourselves from our own inner voice and guidance system, um, but there, there are also negative health implications to their use. And I know that's not the topic of this interview, um, but what it, what it is saying is that when we, consciously separate ourselves or at least use them more intentionally um, batching our work on, on the phone and, um, and and not being on there just as a distraction or um, you know to browse Facebook and Instagram and, um, for, for hours on end we're benefiting not just from tuning into ourselves and our environment but we're also benefiting from not having the negative impact of these things on um, on our mitochondria and ourselves. And we're talking about, you know, devices that were categorized by the World Health Organization as a, as a possible carcinogen, you know? So um, I think you guys are, are on the right path here. What, what technology and apps do you still use regularly? Oh, he's calling me out. I love it. So um, one I mentioned earlier that Tim Ferriss uses, so yeah, he uses pen and paper to... Uh, to detail his workouts, but then he uses Evernote to back them up so he can do a full content search on those. So yeah, Tim got me onto Evernote um, probably five or six years ago. And so 
There's a little application called the Evernote Web Clipper that I have in my Chrome browser. So when I'm doing online research, I can clip an article, um, whether it's a selection or it's a full PDF or whatever it might be, and then tag that and folder that. And then, you know, you can share that with, uh, with your co-authors or anyone you might like. And so I find that, as Tim says, that's like his electronic brain. And so he doesn't forget or misplace stuff. And so that, that's true for me. So I use that. Um, I use Expensify for my, um, it's just a little phone app for my receipts. So at the end of the year, I don't just hand my wife a giant envelope full of receipts, but I actually have an electronic expense report, you know, that's categorized. So, so I use that one and, and try to remember to, to snap a receipt if I'm in a business lunch or beer or whatever that might be. And uh, so there's that. Um, now I'm trying to think, yeah, I mean, I use a Microsoft Surface tablet because I can scribble notes on, on the screen, although I will say this. So I, the last few months, I've started going back to notebooks and pens slash pencils for, for, interview, for phone interviews or indeed in-person interviews. And so while I like on the surface that you can use OneNote or Evernote and write on the screen, I just thought I was trying to think of practical, highly applicable ways that I could cut down my screen time because, you know, I'm doing a lot of, uh, lot of web research, as I mentioned, um, you know, on the high output end, I might be writing, you know, 5,800, 6,200 words a day on a super good day. And um, so really just going back to a notebook, and again, then I do use the Evernote app on my phone to digitize that, but it just, you know, I could be on the phone um, multiple hours in one day. So you multiply that by, you know, X number of days, by X number of weeks, et cetera, and you end up with a lot of hours. So just going back to those notebooks, um, has really enabled me to cut cut my screen time by sometimes several hours a day when I'm in heavy interviewing of my co-authors and maybe topic experts that we bring in. And so, yeah, I do use a few apps, but um, I'm also trying to look for ways to to better practice what I preach because I realize that I'm as guilty as anyone else with uh, with all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely identify with that. You know, coaching calls and interviews and it can seem like you're not even doing that much in a day. And then before you know it, you've been in front of a screen for five hours consecutively. Um, right. And then we limit our kids screen time and it's like, yeah, but daddy, you were in your office on your computer all day. Were you, were, were you not on, on your computer the whole time you were at the coffee shop? You know, sometimes they'll pull you out when your kids get a bit older and start talking back to you. (laughs) It might be annoying on the face of it sometimes if you get someone throws that in your face, but that's the brilliance of one of the brilliant things about having kids, just the brutal honesty, you know, and they'll call you out and stuff. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, you said I need to get off the computer. How long have you been on the computer this week? And I'm like, well, there's no good answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Phil, what what is like the start of your day look like? You you do a lot of writing each day. You're you're constantly in contact with um, collaborators. How do you structure it to maximize your productivity while also practicing what you preach? Yeah, well, I, I've recognized that um, you know in reading books like The Power of When, um, Dr. Michael Bruce's book, and doing some of this chronobiology stuff that. Kelly Storrett and I get into in flight plan with regard to, you know, we were looking at it from a jet lag standpoint and how to overcome that. 
But um, then from there, that led me to kind of examine myself better. And, and again, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus do a great job in peak performance about trying to structure your day around the, the times that you're most productive. And so I realized, you know, I'm a night owl on, at the simplest level, but um, I also need to look at distractions and interruptions. And so really morning-wise, I try to do shorter pieces of writing um, that don't require, you know, two, three, four hour blocks of focus. And so, you know, I do, do a little bit for, for a couple of t- uh, tech companies, you know, that kind of thing. I, I write for the Inertia and for Sup the Mag. So those kind of pieces where they're important to me. So let's get this straight. You know, I'm putting full focus into those. And so, you know, a lot of those between, say, I don't start super early. Don't judge me, people, please. But, um, you know, say between like 9, 9.30 in the morning and, um, you know, mid-afternoon, I'm, I'm focusing my time on those must-dos and those commitments to those that, again, don't, don't require hours and hours of focused writing. And then really, um, sometimes late afternoon or early evening, I'll start to, to block off an hour to two hours for, for book work. And for that, if, even if I am writing, if, if it's not a heavy research day, I just shut down Chrome. And, and so I just have Word up and I'm just, um, just going with it from there. And I, I'll turn my phone off and um, that's that. So I try to be as uncontactable as possible. And then I'll, I'll usually, at this point, I'll be at the coffee shop. So from about 1, 1 p.m. onward, I, I walk 30 minutes each way um, to a coffee shop that is as far from my house um, in this little Colorado, Colorado town as any coffee shop. And it involves me having to go along the side of a lake. And so my commute, I'm pretty freaking spoiled. It, it, that's my walking commute every day. And um, so... Yeah, so that really sets me up well. I'm trying to trying to take what Stephen Kotler took, told me and put it into practice with that. And so then I'll come back and from say five thirty or six until my kids go to bed, I'll be fully focused on on that family time. And um, then you know some nights if uh, if my good lady wife has a movie to watch that I don't particularly want to watch, she'll do that and I'll go right. Or if it's you know dead, deadline is approaching, there might be more of those nights than not. So as soon as the kids are in bed. Um, if my wife and I haven't haven't planned anything together, I'll have from say nine p.m. until I can't see straight, which could be one o'clock, two o'clock, however late it goes, and I'll just go at it, and it, and it's fully focused, and I'm not having to reply to to text messages or IMs or anything like that. So really, the bulk of my my creative output for books does take place at night. I, I like it. I'm definitely more of a night owl myself too. I find that that my best work is done in you know in the afternoon and evening hours. But I can I can still function at a pretty high level in the morning if if I get a workout in beforehand. Um, I've just noticed my whole day is better if I if I get out of bed, get the workout in, and then start doing everything. When when do you work out? And um, I, I know that you're you're a big advocate and practitioner of stand-up paddleboarding. What is your default workout? Yeah, so I mean, for stand-up um, here in Evergreen, they do rentals during the summer, the school holidays, and so it's just a zoo during the day. And so, really, we'll go out evening time as soon as the rental place closes. It is the golden time for that. 
And then workout wise, sometimes it will be during the day on days where I haven't, haven't planned to, to work out with this one friend, Roger, who, who comes over two or three nights a week and we hit it. And, and so if he is coming over again, once the kids are starting to wind down and, and uh, read and that kind of thing, then that'll be the time that he'll come over and we'll, uh, we'll go run the hill at the back of my house and then do some, some stuff in between, you know, so we're trying to get it and we do our, uh, our three position kettlebell carry, you know, overhead until you fatigue, front rack until you fatigue, suitcase carry until you fatigue. So that's up and down my gnarly dirt driveway. <laughs> and then you switch arms and then, you know, so we just do 10 minutes of that to warm ourselves up. And uh, so, yeah, we try to do as much of that outdoors and get, get the kettlebells and the dumbbells outside. And, you, you know, sure, not to say we never go in, in into the garage and do any pull-ups or anything like that, because we sure do. But um so yeah, that, and then if, if he isn't planning to come over and we're not going out to paddle, then just try to get a, a an SBN or something that's better than nothing workout in, you know, like pick two or three exercises and do that before I go to the coffee shop. And uh, that that's the, uh, those other days. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not religious about, um, about trying to work out seven days a week, but I try to make sure that at the bare minimum that we're uh, we're all get, all getting outside. You know, my wife and kids and I um, together, if it's at all possible, um, at least once a day. And I'm doing some high quality um, intentional work, either by myself or with, with my training buddy as well. On on probably five out of those seven days. I love it. And what um, when you're doing your kettlebell work, what what weight kettlebell do you, do you default to? Um, I really don't. I mean, I, like I said, that kind of the go-tos are that three-position carry during the warm-up, and then um, the get up, get up, and the swing, and um, like a, a kettlebell squat, maybe, or a single arm overhead press. You know, I guess those would be my four or five go-tos. But um, really, if you if you do some more, if you're lucky enough to collaborate with one of the world leaders on, in this area of movement quality in Dr. Kelly Starrett and you're also buddies with Greg Cook who obviously invented the functional movement screen and um, was the one that gave me that three position carry to, to fix my dodgy right shoulder then you're pretty you're going to be pretty focused on quality because eventually you know maybe I'll be up in San Francisco and I'll be deadlifting with Kelly and it gets real or I'll be out at Grey Cook's Lake House with some buddies in, in Virginia and it gets real. And so I really try to just focus on quality. So yeah, the weight is not important. The quality is important really um, on all of those. And, and I'll just go up and down the scale, you know, um, and sometimes say with the get up, I'll be going super light, but I'll be trying, I'll be knowing what my sticking point is, is maybe that, um, that kind of weird diagonal position, you know, when you're at the bottom and you're almost kind of pretzled. Yeah. I know that's a big point for me. So I'll be trying to pause for four or five, six seconds and I'll be asking Roger, my training buddy, what do you see? Like, what, what are you seeing in my positioning? And then we'll break that down a little bit. Maybe I'll have to go even lighter. And so it's really about just positional integrity and quality of movement. Um, and the weight is, is secondary at best. I love that. So you're, you're identifying the part of the movement, the, the, the phase in the movement that is most difficult for you. And because of that, you're choosing to spend more time there and, and even bring in another set of eyes to lend some insight as to why it may be more difficult than the rest of the movement. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, really just um, then starting to look at, you know, can I breathe in this position? And if I've stopped breathing, if I'm holding my breath, why is that? And then really, like I said, starting to incorporate some of Brian McKenzie's practices with, okay, now during your aerobic work, you can only breathe through your nose. Okay, well, then you realize you can only do like 50, 60% of the intensity and your body's freaking out. And so what does that look like to start changing that up? And so really trying to connect the dots through Brian's work, you know, Andy's insight, Kelly and Gray's work, and uh, connect those dots between breathing, movement, and, uh, and positioning and seeing what that looks like and seeing where, the, where there are kinks in the hose. Where am I standing on the hose where I should not be? Where am I getting in my own way? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. Um, have you had any difficulty keeping up with relationships as you consciously cut back on technology? Um, no, but I have realized that what you said earlier is true, that I can go through a whole week of speaking to an awful lot of people for an awful lot of time and not do that face to face very much. And so, I mean, in terms of connecting with, um, with Ben and with Jono, two of my buddies from the UK, I mean, technology sure helps there, right? Like Skype. So trying to figure out when can we do those Skype sessions at least once a month or, you know, maybe I need, I need to get back into the rhythm of, of meeting a friend at this certain coffee shop on a Thursday. We did it last Thursday, but mainly on me, we hadn't done it for three or four months or meeting a buddy for a beer and trying to, to, um, to get more of those rich conversations in person as much as possible. Or as I mentioned, if you know, my mates are back in the UK to do that on Skype more often. Um, and then even with my co-authors, just to, to, to start diving deeper with them and their, their spouses and into their, their relationships and you know, what are some of the, the, the challenges that they face. You know, they'll ask me the same question. Sometimes they'll call me out on stuff, you know. Brian and I had a great conversation about how I need to set better boundaries with regard to co-authors and how, how we run up, you know, the process and this kind of thing. And so, you know, it's just, it's really rich, rich relationship. If you'll let it be that, if it isn't just about, okay, we've agreed to do this book, let's put a pedal to the metal and get this thing out as quick as possible. And it, it isn't a transactional relationship or Ke Kelly and I talk for, 30, 40 minutes this morning, you know, and, and some of it was book stuff, but a lot of it was just life, you know, just doing life together. And so who do you choose to do life with and how can I get better about making, being more intentional? Because that's something, yeah, to be candid with you, I've been awful about the last two to three years. Yeah, that's, um, I, I'm hopefully coming out of a period of not doing so well with that. And, um, I, I've just found that like, as I, as I try to cut back on technology, like as I look at my phone right now, I have 191 unanswered text messages. Um, nice. and it's, it's, it's not a good thing. It's more that, you know, when, when I'm done with phone calls and, 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 you know, podcast conversations and things like that, it's like the last thing I want to do is, pick up my phone and, and try to, you know, clear the text inbox. It's like, I want to, I want to go have dinner with my girlfriend and, you know, maybe go to the beach and decompress and get out in nature. Like we've been talking about. So I haven't, I haven't found the, the key to cutting back and still keeping up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that goal of trying to get the zero inbox is unrealistic. And so I think, you know, with, um, whether it's with social media where you say, okay, 10 minutes a day at this time, 
seems to be a good time. Or you start to find apps where you can load up, you know, a week's worth of, of uh, posts to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and you make that automated, you know. Those are some of the things that start to become helpful. Um, or just using, you know, I know a lot of the guys I work with now are using Calendly, you know, like an online calendar app to schedule their time better. And um, and then really, how do you, I mean, Frank Merritt, again, the, the, not to plug another book to you too much, but the 17-hour fast just talks about how we've we've tried to go to Henry Ford and try to make every second efficient and, you know, trying to cram more into each day. Well, well what would happen if we started to take some, some more things out of each day and to, to put more gaps into into our daily practice and so you know even his example of like well one of the reasons people get so ticked off and mad in traffic is because they've jammed their day so full and there's this arms race if you're a parent it seems like which i'm not willing to join that chris bell really explores in his hbo show trophy kids you know just um of oh my kids are in three activities while well, mine are in five you know and then then it, or it could be social commitments or it could be work or it could be all of the above and um if if we start to put a few more gaps intentionally into each day so give yourself if you know it takes you 30 minutes to walk to the coffee shop in my in my case give yourself 30 minutes to walk there so that you're not you know having to run the last five and then do a breath protocol to calm yourself back down before you get on this phone call that you have scheduled you know so try to be a bit more realistic and just just admit your weakness admit that you're not able to do everything every day and that not every day is going to be optimal and knowing that not every day is going to be optimal how are you going to try to schedule in some more gaps to just take the pressure off yourself a little bit and uh, and part of that with brian and with frank is just calling kelly too to some degree is just calling each other out on um setting better boundaries and frank always says you know, the old adage of when, when you say no to, uh, oh, sorry, when you say yes to something, you may say no to something else or two or three other things. Well, that, that's true. So I think we, we, we're trying to do a good job with, um, with that recently, a better job of just, uh, trying to say no more, trying to set better boundaries. And, um, I'm still terrible at it. You know, maybe you are, I think we all are, but just trying to build in more gaps into our lives and then, not trying to fill every second with activity because I think that that's a losing game in the long term. Yeah, I, I agree. I think at least a big part of my journey has been going from what can I do to asking the question, you know, what can I do without? And mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, you can take anything, but let's say supplements, right? What, what supplements could I add to maybe get some benefit here or there? And, and it just becomes this, you know, until you, until you look around and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm taking like a hundred supplements. How did this happen? And then you're no, like, it's mad- that's madness. And I mean, Dr. Andy Galpin, the co you know, with Brian, the, the other co-author on Unplugged talks about this. Like you, if you are taking a supplement, again, like with the use of technology, it should be a problem solution model. Like if you are chronically low in something and you, you either recognize this, you know, from an anecdotal standpoint, or you get tested and recognize that. Your goal should be to return yourself to a baseline. It should never be to try to enhance what, um, you know, what, what nature, what the body was designed to do. And so I think um, anyone that's taking a couple of hundred pills a day, they really need to look at why and look at, look at their, are they asking the right question? 
Like, do we really believe that we we have the capacity to go above the natural levels that that were intended, or should the goal really be as as a not not really as a band aid, but to return you like if you're chronically low, say in magnesium, or maybe it's inflammation, right? Like you start taking fish oil because you you know you're dealing with some joint inflammation or some joint pain. Well. Once you get back to the level where you don't feel that anymore, stop taking the bloody fish oil for a while because now you're back at your baseline. And so I don't think that we should – there are certain certain pharmaceuticals that were only meant to be for you know short-term measures, like four, five, six months that we have turned into people are taking them every day for the rest of their lives, and that's a problem. But with the supplements um, – I think that that's another big part of it that people say, "Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't believe in in traditional medicine, or I'm very suspicious of the pharmaceutical companies." Yeah, but you're doing exactly the same, but with, you know, non-pharmaceuticals, and I think that's an issue. You know, like it should be a problem and solution method. And once you, as Andy says, once you return to that baseline, see if you can go without that for a while. You know. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and. Um you know, that's, that's been a lot of how, how my journey's progressed. And, um, and a lot of what we do with clients is I realized how much of these supplements that we're using myself included are compensatory. And we're trying to, you know, make up for, let's just say a lack of sunlight being the guy from Chicago and, you know, the, the downstream biological effect of, you know, lower dopamine, decreased energy production. And we're throwing a whole bunch of supplements and pharmaceuticals and modafinil at the problem when that's never going to get you back to the same baseline as if you really address the true underlying root cause that's at play. Right. And if someone like jo- Dr. Joseph McCullough doesn't even believe that any of those supplements, like any kind of D3, will ever fully recreate just getting out in sunlight, you know? And, and in the book, Led Hamilton goes into how we're the only culture that fears and actively tries to avoid being out in the sun. Now, that's not to say that you can't get skin cancer if you're out all day, every day, in the brightest part of the day, and that you shouldn't take precautions and use common sense. But I think his point holds that we've created this construct for ourselves that we, you know, we, this fear mongering that we're all going to get skin cancer. And now there's stuff, you know, that you've probably seen those studies and um, probably seen more of them than I have that, uh, what are, what are the real repercussions, whether it be cancer related or other diseases of being in an indoor environment all the time and of going from your house, which is indoors to work, which is indoors to the mall or to the gym, which is indoors and then back home again with no interim of outside time in, baked into our daily rhythms. And I think we're only just starting to understand and to scratch the surface of our comprehension on that topic. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, uh, well, this is, this is awesome. Last, last question. Um, You've had the privilege of working with some of the great luminaries in our space from Brian McKenzie to Laird Hamilton um, and a, a variety of others. Um, what's Dr. Kelly Sturette, what's one habit that you've picked up from any one of those guys that has stuck with you that you've borrowed and is now a part of what you do on a daily or weekly basis? 
Yeah, I mean, just going beyond reiterating just the daily breath work and the exploration of breath and the mobility, um, which has been huge, and um, just movement quality, you know, and being intentional with that. And then obviously, as the book would suggest, getting the heck outside every day. Um, I think it just it goes back to what Brian Grazer talks about in his book, A Curious Mind. And it's really just um, using curiosity and conversations to fuel that curiosity to then help as many people as possible. And really, if you look at some commonalities across all of the people we've mentioned today, that they are they have a white belt mentality, as Brian calls it, and they are humble. They are never entrenched in their beliefs to the point where they don't think that they can learn anything else or they don't entertain, heaven forbid, the possibility that they're wrong. And they also all believe in self-care. And so I think at one point it was similar to how the priests used to be the only ones who could read, you know, so they, they were able to hold power over people. Um, that really what all of these guys are trying to do is put themselves out of business every day and to give you and I the tools to, to look after ourselves better and, and realize our full potential as human beings and to, um, to really help fix fix problems you know whether that's a societal thing or it's just a habit thing like you know sitting too too much and not moving enough um and, and so really just just to always have that that humble perspective and that white belt perspective of being willing to learn and that curious mindset um to, to learn from different people and then what what is the end goal just to help as many people as possible all of these guys are, have bought fully into that and I'm, I'm privileged to be able to, to share in that, in that mission with them. Uh, I love that. I love that mentality of putting yourself out of business. I was having a conversation earlier with, uh, with a 73 year old gentleman who sold his, uh, who sold his practice. He was a, he was a, a dentist and um, he talked about the growing issues he's seen with upselling in medicine. And uh, physicians essentially finding ways to give people more and more and more treatments in order to increase their bottom line, when in many cases, those things aren't necessary. And, uh, and, and that's part of why I love what you guys are doing with, um, you know, you and Kelly and Brian and, and trying to put yourself out of business. Like Bruce Lee says, a good teacher makes himself obsolete. And... Um, and, and I love I love that's what you guys are doing. Um, you talk about it in Unplugged, and the book's fantastic. I haven't finished all of it yet because it, it just arrived last week. And we've had some chaos going on, but I've I've pulled a lot of bits of gold from it. And, and uh, kudos to you guys! Fantastic job. Oh, well, thank you, and thank you so much for being willing to have me on today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, it's been it's been my pleasure, and I have to give a shout out to. Jessica Wilson, who's a, a good friend and, and client for putting us in touch with one another. Um, so shout out to Jessica, great person. Um, Bill, where, where can we follow and find out more of what you're up to? Where can people get the book unplugged um, and, and stay up to speed with everything you're working on? Yeah. So, I mean, um, Unplugged, I'm hoping indie bookstores have it. You know, I do love a good indie bookstore. And if not, just ask them and I'm sure they can order it in for you. And then obviously on Amazon, um, look for it on there. Uh, Barnes & Noble, those usual outlets. 
And then, um, yeah, so we, we have a website for, for the book, which is www.athleteunplugged.com. And then really, I mean, I would encourage people to just um, search out Brian's work and Andy's work, you know, just uh, you can find Brian at powerspeedendurance.com and then just Google Andy Galpin's name and you'll find his. And then the same with Kelly at mobilityward.com. And uh, yeah, just just look at them first because they'll be able to help you a lot more than than I will be able to. But um, if, if you're interested in, in, in uh, starting a conversation with me, I would love to have that, that talk with you. And uh, it's basically all, almost all of the social media outlets backslash Phil White book. And then my website, pretty similar, philwhitebooks.com. And I'd yeah, I'd love to hear questions, comments, even criticisms. You know, we don't, we're not arrogant enough to, to think that we can't improve these books or improve what we're saying or add something to that. So, yeah, I'd love to, uh, to talk to anyone and everyone. Phil, thank you so much. This is, this is great. The, the book is, at, is Unplugged, Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness. It was co-authored with Brian McKenzie and Dr. Andy Gelpin. The, you can learn more about the book at athleteunplugged.com. And uh, for more information or how to reach out to Phil White, philwhitebooks.com. Phil, it's been a true pleasure. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. And uh, this, has been, this has been a lot of fun. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by AdrenalQuiz.com. If you're concerned about your stress levels and how they might be affecting your health, I highly suggest you head over to AdrenalQuiz.com. AdrenalQuiz.com is an easy-to-use tool for calculating and evaluating different stress-related systems and the effect they have on your body. It's also the first step in understanding how to reset your adrenals to lose weight, maximize your performance, and increase energy. I was absolutely floored when I took the quiz and realized how stressed my body actually was. And since following the program, I've noticed great improvements in my energy, my focus, and just feel like I've experienced an overall physical and psychological reset. So if you're ready to let go of stress and reset your body, I encourage you to check out adrenalquiz.com. That's A-D-R-E-N-A-L quiz.com. <laughs>